Let's go to the Lord Jesus. We thank you for what you're doing here tonight. This is a sacred space. This is a sacred conversation. We talked on Sunday, Jesus, about before we ever get to the wedding, you come in that processional before we ever get to the wedding. The first has to be a funeral, and the funeral is now. And so we are going to examine the cross, and we want to do so with reverence. We want to do so as people purchased by your blood. We want to take communion with reverence. We want to take communion humbly, and we want to walk into this space changed by you, Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name, and everybody said... Amen. Congratulations. We have four services on Easter. We have one on Good Friday because Good Friday is not for everyone. Good Friday is for those people who really want to, kind of a remnant. We have downtown here. Shout out to downtown. Micah's with me. It's been a while. I don't know if he's been with me when I've preached because he's always preaching for a long time. And so we're all here together for this one service and uh, there's this remnant of new life that's here to really focus in on the cross. We do have childcare. Um, this is a sacred time. It's not about me. I'm not going to try to be funny or tell any jokes. We're going to get right into it. Uh, but just know if, if your child is not cool with being in this type of service and, and really is just getting edgy, we do have childcare for little kids. And so this uh, is a serious conversation. And here we go. Uh, when we're thinking about the crucifixion, what we tend to do is hone in naturally on the physical pain of Christ. And so you watch movies like The Passion of the Christ, and you have to prepare your heart for that. And then you start to think things. You start to think, well, man, I, I can't believe Jesus did that for me. And then you dwell on that, which is good, because what he did was amazing and amazingly painful, and it was torture. And so we look at the scourging, the nails in his hands, the nails in his feet, the crown of thorns placed on his head. We're going to talk about all of that tonight before communion the blood flowing from his body, and then we look at it through the lens of him hanging from nails in the hot sun, and, and if you're human, it sends chills down your spine. Because what Jesus did was truly amazing. It was incredibly sacrificial. But when you actually read the gospel accounts, you have to do so objectively from the standpoint of there is a lack of adjectives when it describes the physical suffering of Christ. It just kind of says this happened, this happened, this happened. It doesn't get into a ton of details specifically on how he felt while he was enduring. And the reason that it doesn't do that is because it's not the central point of the storyline. Really, when you look closer historically as to what's going on as Jesus is now headed towards the cross, is it's not, although it's terrible, it's not something specific to him. So if he's not the Son of God, then this is just another one of 30,000 men being crucified and some women in this time period. In fact, there were times in Rome where they would line the streets with crucifixes. And so as he's enduring the cross, you look at the pain, but the focal point of the narrative, it's like a, a terrible Shakespearean narrative in a sense. The focal point of the narrative isn't just the suffering physically that he endured, but more importantly, really, it's the work of God within it and then the shame attached to it. The writers are trying to get you to understand something this Good Friday, that this was incredibly shameful. It's one thing to crucify someone who's guilty, but it's a whole other thing to crucify someone that's innocent. And then on top of that, it's a whole other thing to crucify someone who's perfect. 
It's a whole other thing to crucify someone who's really only being crucified because you should be on that cross. And so when we see the story, see the shame attached to it, the people that crucified Christ clearly saw him as an absolute joke. The mentality of the people who killed Jesus is the focal point of the storyline. It's not just what they did. It's why they did it and how they treated Jesus as they brought him center stage. They treated him like a liar. They treated him like a lunatic. They treated him like a crazy person. And here he is, the son of God. And so back and forth he goes as we pick up the story. There's a Jewish trial that's absolutely corrupt. And now Jesus goes before Pilate and faces a Gentile judicial system. Pilate declares that Jesus is innocent. He sends Jesus to Herod, who comes to the conclusion that Jesus is no threat, sends him back to Pilate. And so it's kind of this 2,000-year-old hot potato back and forth. They want to accomplish somebody, but no one, something, but no one wants the blood on their hands. And so then, in a twist of fate, Pilate suggests in his brilliant idea that maybe between the two of them, this, this criminal Barabbas... In Jesus Christ, that one person can be let go of the crime and not be crucified. He says, well, shall I release to you Barabbas or Jesus? And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know the narrative. The crowd who's bloodthirsty says, release Barabbas. Release the bad man. Release the killer. We want to see Jesus crucified. And so the plan backfires as we pick up the text in Mark 15, 15. In Mark 15, it tells us, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And so then the logic becomes, if Jesus is scourged, and somehow the bloodthirsty crowd will be able to be appealed to, and their sense of mercy and compassion will manifest, because to be scourged, to be flogged, was incredibly violent. Anyone who wants to see violence should have been satisfied. They should have been sick to their stomach when they watched this happen to Christ. As they picked up a wooden handle wrapped with leather and extended it to Jesus' bone, ripping off his flesh, two men would be used in this instrument of ripping off his flesh to punish Jesus. He'd either been tied to a post or stretched out on a flat table, arms extended. Or some people were hung from a ceiling. And they had their feet suspended, and then flesh was torn all the way down to the bone. Deep veins and arteries, even organs, were exposed, which would cause death. The muscles were shredded as well as the skin. And the soldiers would do this 39 times because that was the maximum amount of time allotted. And instead of being shaken, this is how you know how demonic this process was, Instead of being shaken to the core, these men's hearts were so hard that they then just start mocking the Savior. Verse 16, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed them in purple cloak, and twisted together a crown of thorns that they put on his head. And so they put this robe after he's had his flesh annihilated on him, and imagine what that process would have looked like when the robe came off. His major organs being exposed. They took a crown of thorns, and the long thorns from the plant that they would have used could have been as long as 12 inches, and they crushed it on his skull. Matthew adds to the narrative and says that they put a reed in his hand to create a mock-like scepter. And then they knelt down before him and they mocked him. 
In verse 18 of chapter 15 of Mark, it says, They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck his head with a reed, and they spit on him, kneeling down in homage to him. And so they are just mocking him at every angle. The innocent, sacrificial lamb, predestined to go to the cross by the foreknowledge of God, by the plan of God, by the plan of Jesus, by the plan of the Holy Spirit. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. This is what they would have said to Caesar. Jesus claims that he is a king. And so they say, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they strike his head with a reed that would have been a bamboo-like stick that grows along the Jordan River. And when we read this part of the text, it was a verb that would have been kept striking, kept beating. They were spitting and they were punching. And this is no surprise because the Old Testament said that this was going to happen. This is the pre-planned purpose of God to forgive your sin. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, the Bible says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And so now Pilate brings out Jesus. And in John's Gospel, we see, he says, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Which makes him not heroic, but the ultimate coward because he's willing to have his vital organs exposed when he knows. He says, there's no guilt in this guy. And so he's trying to appease a bloodthirsty crowd to save his own life. And so he's the ultimate coward. And the crowd is yelling, crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate, because he's a weak leader, caves to the crowd. Verse 20 of Mark. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. So Jesus is now carrying his cross to the place that he'd breathe his last breath. He's so tired that he gets help from Simon, the Cyrene, to carry the cross piece. And then as he breathes his final breath, he commits his spirit to the Lord He tells God the Father to forgive because they don't know what they do. And his plan of salvation with the Father and the Holy Spirit, look at me, is in full effect. This Friday, it is in full effect. None of this a surprise to the Savior. None of this a surprise to God. And we prepare our hearts for communion with these facts. And so every Good Friday, I try to take a few things although the story is the same, and just apply them as thinking points, as as just maybe some thoughts for you to walk away with, some thoughts to prepare your heart with this Easter Sunday, some things to prepare your heart now in the grieving process so that you can celebrate the resurrection, because if there's no resurrection, then it's all for naught. If there's no resurrection, Jesus is just another one of 30,000 people who endured the shame of the cross, but Jesus Christ rises from the dead Sunday, and we'll get there Sunday. We're not going to go there now. I just want to bring this idea home before we take communion. There, There are some central themes to the shame. And one of them is I'm thinking about what this possibly could have been like. And I'm thinking about it from a father's perspective. And one of the thoughts I had for us before we have communion together is this. To disrespect the son like this. To disrespect a son. An only son. Is emotionally to torture the father. 
I mean, if, if you walk into this space and you have a son, then maybe you can get a bl- glimpse of what this possibly could be like. This pre-planned plan of God. Jesus deserving praise receives torture. Jesus deserving reverence receives humiliation. This would have been completely disrespectful. The people that beat Jesus should have been bowing down before him. The injustice is so great, it's unlike anything before or after Jesus. And then you start thinking about it from maybe like a psychological perspective, which is where my mind always goes. And I'm thinking about it from the Father and the Son. I'm thinking about it from the heart of man. And I'm thinking of all the things that I can't stand. Something that I just detest is to be disrespected as a man. In fact, even worse than that is to disrespect my own son, the lineage. My oldest son is now 18 years old. He represents a time when new life started, and so you guys have watched him come through the ranks, and now he's going to be an adult. You think about this through the lens of your own son. What's worse than being disrespected as a man? What's worse than being disrespected is that your own son is disrespected. When men get disrespected, this is what they do. They, they, they put up walls. They create emotional distance. They do all sorts of things they never thought that they would do. In fact, men tend to have game plans in life, at least successful ones do. And men have game plans in life, and and within their game plan, they're going to follow that plan, but they will derail the game plan if they feel disrespected. Their marriage will fall apart if they feel disrespected. They, They will get in fights that they never got in if they feel disrespected. They will quit jobs if they feel disrespected, because in the heart of man is this ideal that they need to be respected. And who needs to be reverenced and respected as a man more than Jesus Christ himself? And he is completely disrespected. And God the Father, who is orchestrating all of this for our sins to be forgiven, is watching it. And he is, has to be just heartbroken. That God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit are watching this great sacrifice take place. Not only that, we walk away with this reality that Jesus was humiliated in his disrespect, and Jesus' humiliation demands from us an action step. Jesus' humiliation demands that we respond with humility. And so we see all of this play out, and we can miss it. Jesus, the Son of God who deserves all the glory and honor, gets a cross, gets shame, gets death. Humility is put on display as he's despised and rejected. And there's only one response, and I need you to hear this. There is only one response. In fact, I will say something that I will rarely say to you. If you don't have this response, you're not saved, so you might want to pay attention. This is a big one. There is only one response to what happened on that cross. Any other response is a clear sign that you don't know Christ as Savior. The one response to this type of humility put on display is this. It should have been me. If you don't understand that, you don't understand the gospel. Jesus didn't come to earth to show us just good ways to live. Jesus came to earth and showed us good ways to live because he was perfect. But the entire time he lived on earth, the entire gospel narrative is pushing us to this processional that we talked about last Sunday in church, and it's pushing us to this cross, and it's pushing us to this resurrection. And if there is no cross, and if there is no resurrection, then Jesus is just a good guy, but there's a lot of good guys. If the humble response to the cross 
isn't simply, it should have been me. He gave his own life so that I could live. Then the byproduct is, you don't know the gospel. You don't know Christ. You, you have no entrance into heaven. It wasn't just a kind act. It was the only means in which we can be saved. To dismiss it, to compartmentalize it, to walk out of this space unchanged by it is a massive miscalculation. Can you imagine how underappreciated you would feel if you did something for people who didn't deserve it and the response was just kind of meh? If you, if you even took it a step further, like if, if I came to you with a perfectly healthy kidney, perfect kidney, and it turns out I, I meet you after service, and you say, I, I know you, you've got this kidney that you can spare, and mine is failing quickly. It's really a result of some things that I shouldn't have done in my life. And I said to you, you know, I, I think that God's calling me to, to, to help you in this. And so we set up an ice bath in the baptismal. I mean, we don't have the proper insurance or something, you know, something like that. But we set up this whole situation. You take my kidney. You walk out of this place. And with a lack of humility, I'm still in the ice bath, bath baptismal, and you just kind of pat me on the back, say, hey, thanks, bud, and you walk out, say, maybe I'll come bring you by something to eat next week. I got to go. Thanks for the kidney. I can tell you in my sin nature, I'd want that kidney back. We'd have a second operation. Because if I'm going to do something so humble, it then demands from you a humble response, a, a spirit of appreciation, a spirit of humility that just says, it should have been me. It should have been me who died and you saved my life. Now increase that times a million. When we look at the gospel account this Friday before we get to Sunday, all of us should say, if we are saved, if we are purchased, if we are redeemed, it should have been me. That's why communion is so special. That's why this day has reverence. Because the Bible says in the Old Testament, even our good deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. We're fallen short creatures. We are sinners. By omission and commission, we are sinners. And here is the Son of God going to this cross in our place. Taking our sin, taking our punishment. Last thought, elders can get ready. I said it Sunday, we're going to say it one more time. And I'm going to ask you just to kind of meditate on this as a means of preparing for Sunday. That all of this was planned. That Sunday, there's this setup where he's on a donkey. And they're saying, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's this metaphor of Christ coming for his bride and, he, and he's coming in just like the Old Testament said he would and he's ready to save and then he's ready to purchase his bride who has to be bought with a price. But make no mistake, before there's going to be a wedding, before we're united with Christ, this is the gospel. Before there is a wedding there has to be a funeral. Without the cross and without the resurrection, there's no wedding. The bride is impure. The bride has to be ransomed. 
A debt must be paid. God is loving, but God is just. And he is so loving that he places his own perfect son on a cross, has a funeral, so that when we have our own funeral and we die to our sins, then we can rise in Christ and then we have the wedding. And so tonight, we hone in on what he did going to that cross. Tonight's the funeral, but the wedding's coming. So I'm going to have the elders that are here come forward. I'm going to pray in just a second. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then he poured wine and he told them, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Greg's going to come back up. Him and Trent are going to pick on the guitar. We're going to close with one final song. But I want you to prepare your hearts now for communion to really sit and focus in on this funeral. If you are a Christian, you don't need to be a member here, anything like that. But if you are a follower of Christ, we invite you to come forward. We're doing it different. We have different types of elements tonight. Uh, we actually have real bread, which is exciting for us, right? And, and, and so we're going to take the bread. They're going to tear it off for you. You're going to dip it in the cup. And then you're going to give yourself communion. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for the work of the cross. We thank you for the hope that we have in you and you alone. Prepare our hearts for the funeral, Jesus. We thank you for your substitutionary atonement. Forgive us of our sins. Make us into your image. If there's anyone in here that's never had their own funeral, they've never been born again, they've never said, Jesus, I believe what you did on that cross was for me. I believe three days later you rose from death so that I can have life. I believe that you took my punishment and I pick up my cross and follow you. If anyone in here has never said that, then I pray that tonight they would give their life to you. But Jesus, for all of us that are in you, help us to hone in on what you've done. We pray these things in your name. Amen.